Welcome to episode 104 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat and paper making masterclasses here in the studio. And I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Carol Barton, a painter, paper engineer, book artist, and teacher who has published several editions and has organized both local and national shows, including the Traveling Books and Bookends show and the Smithsonian Institution's Science and the Artist Book exhibition. She exhibits and teaches internationally and has taught at elementary, high school, and university levels. Barton has had several international residencies, and her pocket paper engineer workbooks in three volumes are how-to guides to make pop-up cards and pages. She is currently producing a series of watercolor landscape paintings for exhibition. Enjoy our conversation! Well, Carol Barton, welcome to Paper Talk. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, it's great to have you. And um, let's just start about start out with a little bit about your background and okay. growing up and anything creative you did in childhood. Sure. Um, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and went to uh, public high school there. Uh-huh. And then attended Washington University School of Fine Arts. Okay. Um, there I majored in painting. And the other thing during that time is I was working a, a summer job at the Arch in St. Louis. So that was under the National Park Service. So that was my summer job. Oh. Um, when I graduated, uh, I continued working at the Arch full time for the next year. It was a great job. I got a lot of practice in public speaking. I gave talks about Aerosarn and the architect. And uh, so you gave tours tours. Uh and also helped with the museum installation. They were they were putting in the Museum of Western Expansion at the time. So a a pretty varied experience Uh, from there. When my appointment ended, I applied to lots of parks across the United States and ended up going to Washington, D.C., uh, working at Wolf Trap Theater Park, which is also under the Park Service. So that's how I moved to Washington. I had plans to go back to St. Louis. And then one day I was toward the end of my time at Wolf Trap, I was looking at some other parks and I walked into this very unusual park called Glenico Park. It was under the National Park Service mainly because they had just acquired it to prevent uh, commercial development there. Mm. And it, it was an old like art deco amusement park and it sat vacant for a couple years. And then the artists in the area seeing those wonderful building spaces began inquiring about using them as artist studios. Uh So the park service allowed them to move in and uh, start fixing them up and artists started teaching there. And by the time 
I arrived a couple of years later. It was a full-fledged artist center under the National Park Service. Very unusual situation. So the day I arrived, I walked into a fiber arts opening in the gallery uh-huh. and realized this would be a great place to work. Um, I found out there was a job opening, came back the next day and was hired and worked there for the next 18 years. So, so Wow. So where was that that you worked? At the fiber it, arts place? Well, or? it's the the entire park was an art center called Glenico Park. Right. And it incorporated a lot of different artist studios. They had a right. theater, they had photography, a full ceramic studio, a full woodworking shop. And I eventually married the woodworker, uh-huh. uh, Henry. Right. And then... Um, a full sculpture studio, a dance company, a theater company, uh, painting, drawing classes, and just a whole, you know, range of art uh, activities. So it was a great place for me to end up. And I worked there uh, coordinating the education program, uh, Mm -hmm. talking about different arts activities in the community and curating shows in the gallery. So I had a great time there. And now you still, you live there, right? Right. I still live in Washington. I live in the town of Glen Echo, which was, Glen Echo was originally, before it was an amusement park, it was a Chautauqua. So the Chautauqua in the late 1800s sponsored a lot of lectures and philosophical activities and arts activities. But the Chautauqua only lasted a year and closed down because of a malaria scare. Uh-huh. And then, then the place became an amusement park. And it worked. It uh, ran as an amusement park until the 19, late 1960s. And that's when the Park Service acquired it. So okay. it became a, the art center that it is now um, in the early 70s. And I came there in, what, 1977. Right. Okay. And so you live in the town, and the art center is in the town as well, is in the amusement park. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And just to go back to the Chautauqua, so there's still one in New York. Is that the same? It's one in New York. Yes. Uh There were lots of others at that point. They Uh were, like, all over the eastern seaboard out Uh to the Mississippi. And uh, now I think there's still a couple of them operating as Chautauquas, but the one in Chautauqua, New York, was the first. Okay. And it was named that because it's on Chautauqua Lake okay. in New York. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, uh, just tell me a little bit about your focus of painting when you were in college and whether you continue that through these jobs. Okay, so um, I did continue to paint Mm -hmm. when I arrived in Washington. I had a little uh, set up in my group house there where Uh I could paint. And I did oils, um, figurative. The interesting thing is I had been to Italy a couple times and really loved the Italian paintings that sort of were sequential. They told stories Mm -hmm. through like three or four panels. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying some of that. And then the book arts um, came about because one of the groups at the art center was called the Writer Center. And they 
taught writing classes, but they also had a little offset press. And mm -hmm. a number of people from Visual Studies Workshop in Rochester, New York, had uh -huh. moved down and were using that little press to do artist books. Uh -huh. So I sort of, I did a lot of work at the Writer Center to uh, publish the education brochures and the graphics for the park. Mm -hmm. And then they received a grant from the NEA to produce 20 artist books. And mm -hmm. they came, the director of the Writer Center came to me one day and said, hey, we got some money. Would you be interested in a grant to try doing a book? And I said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was the easiest grant I ever got. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> so that was wow. how I got started with the artist books uh, there at the park. Uh, the first book I did was called Beyond the Page, and it didn't have any pop-ups in it, but it did have die-cut openings throughout. Uh -huh. And so that's where I learned about the die-cutting process. And then a friend of mine found a used carousel book from oh. the early uh, 1900s. And when I saw that book, I was just so entranced by the three-dimensionality of it, because the carousel book is like a set of nested accordions that right. pulls into a circle. Yeah. And seeing that, I began wondering about other historic examples of books that had moving parts or were sculptural pop-ups. And from right. there. I yeah. wanna ask I wanna ask about the die cutting, like how how oh, you sure. knew about that and how you did it in that first book. Okay. The first <laughs> book. The first book was interesting uh -huh. because um, I guess in designing it, you know, I did a little research and found out that uh, openings in books were usually die cut. And die cutting is a process where a set of blades are locked up on a press mm -hmm. and the blades are pushed through the paper going through the press and in that process, a hole is cut in the page or a shape is cut out of the page. Um, they didn't have a facility to do that at the Writer Center. They only had an offset press. They did not have a letter press. Okay. Um, you can do die cutting on a letter press, but right. that book was cut at thrifty paper boxes <laughs> in uh -huh. downtown DC. It was uh -huh. a company that cut out, that die cut box shapes commercially and this was a very unusual project for them right but they had it. a lot of fun with it i yeah. bet they got a kick out of that yeah yeah and so what was the reason that you needed the die cutting in that book um in that book it's sort of a dreamlike storyline mm -hmm. and so each page has a cutout window or door or oh, some okay. opening that leads both forward into the next page and back through the previous page. Okay. So it's a really sort of interactive storyline because you're seeing bits of each page um, through the prior page. Right, right. And how many did you produce? Uh, uh, I, I mean, to have I, it die cut, you need to produce a certain quantity. Yeah, yeah. there were originally 250. Okay. And then one day late at night, I was like trimming them out and I miscut like 25 of them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it got reduced to like 225 copies. Yeah. Um, and um, that 
book sold out relatively wow. quickly. So, you know, it was uh, really fun to do. It was a hard project. It took me about a year and a half to do that first book. Yeah. And but, how did you sell it? How, who did you sell it to? Um, or through? Let's see. It, it got reviewed in mm -hmm. a couple places and it was shown a lot. So then institutions that were mm -hmm. just starting to go, to formulate artist book collections right. began collecting it. And then collectors, book collectors at that time were just starting to amass their own collections. So that's how it sold. Okay. Uh, what was okay. the other thing? Um, it it uh, sort of launched that whole, it was right at the beginning of where a lot of artist books were appearing. So was sort of at the vanguard of that movement right and that nea grant sounds like that was right probably the first artist book first grant. artist book grant yeah 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 how cool how cool um okay so then you said you went into you got interested in carousel books and sort of right. what happened next so from there um i i was had the luxury of being in Washington, D.C. with all of the great libraries here. So the first thing I did was contact Ellen Wells, who was the librarian at the Smithsonian's Dibner Library. Mm. It's a historic library of scientific uh, and early volumes. And she was such an incredible librarian. Mm. So I made an appointment to go down to see the collection Mm -hmm. And by the time I got down there, she she knew every book in the collection. Just they weren't cataloged as pop up or movable books, but she knew where they were and she pulled them all out for me to see. Oh, wow. So and I was most interested not really in children's books, but in the science texts. That's right. what really fascinated me. So these were early books on mathematics and anatomy and uh volvels probably yeah yes, a lot I of volvels uh -huh. astronomy yeah and uh and so she also had uh lists from other shows of similar books and so then i could take that and go to the library of congress uh -huh. and people might not realize it but all of the departments in washington have their own libraries Mm -hmm. So the National Library of Agriculture, the National Library oh. of Medicine, at National Institute of Health. So there are so many libraries in this area to explore. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the Library of Congress has, you know, first of all, they have a whole section just of children's books mm -hmm. um, that had a lot of pop-ups and movables. And then they also, some of their books were cataloged as uh, having movables, some were not, and some I worked from those lists that Ellen gave me to locate the early books that right. um, did have movable parts in them. Okay. And so were you making, starting to make your own structures at the same time? Right. From that, um, I, I got lots of ideas, obviously. And it was at the Smithsonian that I saw the first tunnel books. Okay. So those were books that um, they stretch out. There are two accordions on either side 
and then there's a viewing hole in the middle. And when you look through the viewing hole, you see a scene on the inside of the book. Right. The terminology tunnel book comes from the fact that a lot of those books were made to commemorate the building of the tunnel under the Thames River in London. Ah. So the, the book showed people walking through the tunnel. Right. <laughs> and there's even one at Yale at the Sterling Library that shows people walking through the tunnel underneath and then all the, all the boats floating on the river on the top. That's a really oh, great one. Yeah. But they were often made either as commemorative pieces for special events like mm -hmm. the tunnel, or they were made um, of scenes of natural beauty and sold as tourist souvenirs. Okay. And, and really, I don't see the, the historic tunnel books real, as so much as books, because they're really just one view through the tunnel. Um, usually the sides are blank. Mm. They're either bound on the sides or top and bottom, and they tend to be blank. But the potential for pushing them back into bookdom, say, mm -hmm. um, is that they actually are comprised of two accordion books on right. either side or top and bottom. Plus, they've got front and back. And you can add pages to the front and back to add sort of a little right. normal book to the back. And that pushes the viewer to really look, to really explore all the surfaces of the book into more of a, a real reading of the book instead of just a single viewpoint. Right. And did you, did you find examples of that or is that something that you kind That's, of started I, doing? I started adding to uh -huh, the, uh -huh. yeah, most of the historic examples were just, you open the book, you look through the middle. That, that was it. I don't, I can't recall any historic examples that went beyond that. Right. Okay. So somewhere in there, you started teaching. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, I started playing around with the books. Uh -huh. And then um, again, at the Writer's Center, they said, well, now you've done all this research and you sort of know how they're constructed. Do you want to teach a class? Mm -hmm. So it just grew from there. Okay. Um, I guess uh, my father was a diesel engine mechanic and I grew up building things and tearing things apart. So I, I could usually look at a structure and figure out how it was done. There weren't uh -huh. any classes at that time right, right. in paper engineering. Um, and I think most of the paper engineers, even now, have more of a background in architecture, engineering, um, that sort of uh, mindset where they're mm -hmm. thinking about how things are built and how they're mechanically engaged. So I had that background growing right. up uh -huh. and was able to sort of look at something and figure out how it was built. And then the challenge was figuring out how to convey that to people that didn't have the mechanical mindset. So that took a yeah. while. Right. Yeah. Right. Did you, just some paper engineers take apart old books to explore the mechanisms. Did you ever do that? On, on rare occasions. Yeah. Okay. But usually you could usually just, I just figure it out and try uh -huh. to build it from looking at something. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Ah. Okay. So um, 
Yeah. So you have a lot of different things probably that were going simultaneously. Um, what about like your artist books? Did, okay. did you go right into another one or? Um, I, How did that evolve? The first two books I made were, first three books I made were tunnel books. Mm-hmm. And the first one was uh, based on an old map, a, a round globe map that I had found at a, a five and dime store here in the mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. And so I made a tunnel book out of it. It was called Tunnel Map. And I submitted it to Women's Studio Workshop in Rosendale, New York, which is a, uh, yeah. a group that... Um, it's an art center, and they also sponsor residencies to produce artist books. So um, I sent it in to them, and they liked it, but I think I had missed the deadline. Oh. <laughs> and But they liked it so much, they went back and got more grant funding for it. Uh-huh. And then I did a residency there for a month and a half, and I produced two tunnel books during that residency. One was Tunnel Map um, with this globe image, and the other was called Everyday Road Signs, and it's sort of an abstract trip across country. So there are maps moving from Washington, D.C., all the way across the country out to California, And sort of when you look through the middle, there are abstract uh, road signs. The the binding strip actually becomes the road through the book. Oh, cool. And there are uh, road signs leading you out to the West Coast from the East Coast. So those Mm -hmm. two books I silk screened up there. Okay. And then, uh, and I die cut both of them up there on Uh on their platen press. And then it, you know, the books take a long time because then there's all the assembly involved. Right. So it took maybe another year and a half to get all the books assembled. The tunnel map was done in an edition of 125. Mm. And Everyday Road Signs, I think, was an edition of 80. Wow. So to put, yeah. you know, two, over 200 books together took quite a bit of time. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then, lis- then, listeners, uh-huh. we'll, well, I just want to say that we'll put um, some images of these books and a link to your website in the show notes. Okay. So, yeah. Then um, the next book I did was also a tunnel book. It was called Loom. Mm-hmm. And it incorporated uh, pic- pictures that I had uh, drawn into of traditional Eastern rug images. Mm. And then some landscape images, because a lot of rugs also refer to the landscape. Mm -hmm. And uh, the view through the middle is a NASA photograph of that famous photograph of the Earth floating in our space. Oh, yeah. So that whole book came together when I was at another library at the Textile Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, And I came across a, a quote there. No one half unraveled a knot from the skein of the universe, mm. and each who came and and, and upbraid the same, but made the tangle worse. Oh. Uh, so the whole book evolved out of that quote. Yeah, the landscape, the rugs, the weaving, and the view of the earth. Right. That book was printed at Pyramid Atlantic Center for Paper Ink and 
paper prints and books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was They had an offset press at that time. They no longer do, but they did have an offset press uh, that was being run there. And uh, it was printed on their press. And then again, it took a long, long time to get all of them assembled. I die cut that on a platen press that I had at that time. I no longer have it, but I, okay. I die cut the book myself at that point. And describe the advantage of the offset press. That allows you to print four color imagery. Right. Or, yeah. I could. So in the original book, Beyond the Page, this mm-hmm. is before computer technology was accessible to everyone. Right. So for that, we were working on a one color press. In fact, for both Loom and the original Beyond the Page, we were working on a one color press. Uh-huh. So every color had to be run through separately. Wow. Okay. And then for each color, the, the, I was working with both photographic images and drawn images. So the plate that ran that color had to be burned sometimes five, six, seven times with different images mm. because the photographic image was run, even if it was all run in red the photograph was run in red then the drawing was run in red then the type was run separately and then all those layers built up to create the full color page so it was a labor intensive process on the press too yeah wow yeah yeah i worked after college i worked in new york city for a commercial printing company Mm -hmm. in, in new york and um yeah, we had offset presses, but they had all the color channels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Six color, four color. So all the colors went through the press at the same time. Yeah. So, wow. <laughs> this was a different process. <laughs> yeah. And then each time you burned the plate, you had to mask off the area that was burned and unmask the area that had to be burned with the next right. image. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, okay. And you're, you're like, you straddle several communities, which is really interesting. So I think I met you in the early nineties when I was living in New York, working at Dudonay paper mill at right. the center for book arts. So right. you're, you have like book arts connections and then also the paper engineering. So which, which community, it sounds like book arts was the first one. Yeah. Book arts and, was the first community. Okay. There really wasn't at that point, a pop-up community. <laughs> um, yeah, there was the Movable Book Society newsletter pretty early right. on, but it was just something that went through the mail and right. yeah, it took yeah. a while till they started having meetings, right? Right, yeah. So okay. trying to think, I mean, mainly it was just the teaching that I was doing. And then through the teaching, I was connecting with both the book arts and the pop-up communities. Right. So you were teaching um, primarily on the East coast and Um, then maybe expanded. Yeah. I began teaching um, locally. Mm -hmm. I taught at pyramid Atlantic and a couple of classes in Baltimore, Micah, and then um, center for book arts was an early place that I began teaching. Mm-hmm. And with the, 
I think with the publication of their catalog, other places learned about my teaching and then right. contacted me to teach. So um, I, I was still working at the park okay. as a National Park Service employee. I was originally furloughed, laid off for a month, which I loved. Ah. And then every time through the 80s that the, the government got a budget cut back, I would beg to be furloughed more. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time I left, I think I was furloughed for five months out of the year because okay. I was teaching in those months that I was laid off from the Park Service. Right. And then at that point... That was 1995. I left the park because I had so much teaching. I, cu I couldn't do both things right. anymore. Right. And so it was in 1995, I just be began teaching full time. And I was teaching at, uh, by that time, I was teaching at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a year semester teaching at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. It was a little crazy because I was traveling up to Philadelphia for two days and then right. traveling down to Harrisonburg, Virginia for a couple of days and, and right. a lo lot of commuting in between. And I, I was teaching other places, Minnesota Center for Book Arts and mm -hmm. California, uh, wherever they wanted me, I would teach. Right. And were your classes um, all about paper engineering or did you specific like the tunnel book or? It, kind of my classes included all of those. Yeah. So yeah. I would teach basic binding and then the sculptural book forms mm -hmm. and then the pop ups, too. So it was concentrated, I guess you'd call it sculptural book art. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Cool. Um, and then how did your your book series, The Pop-Up Paper Engineer, come about? Oh, <laughs> that was a struggle. <laughs> um, so by that time, I'd been teaching, you know, probably 15, 18 years. And I had developed a way to, to really teach someone who had no experience mm -hmm. in pop-ups how to do basic structures. And it you know, it worked really well in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, it'd be nice to sort of get this down on paper and expand to a broader audience. Right. So I designed a book um, proposal uh -huh. and I took it down to Santa Fe. At that point, Santa Fe was one of the two art centers, uh, two uh, paper engineering centers in the U.S., commercial paper engineering centers. So the first one was set up by Waldo Hunt in La Jolla, California. It was mm -hmm. called Intervisual Books. Mm -hmm. And they um, designed the pop-up books and they had them printed down in Cali, Colombia mm -hmm. and uh, assembled down there too. The pop-up industry follows cheap labor. Right. So because the yeah. books have to be put together by hand. Yeah. Yeah. And then one of uh, their employees split off and set up White Heat. Uh, Jim Diaz set it up in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, okay. And uh, I have family members down there. So we were going down there anyway to visit my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. 
And um, that was funny. One time I was down there and my sister-in-law said, oh, let's go over to Waiheke. You know, you can, you can meet Jim Diaz. Mm-hmm. And I had the prototype of the book proposal for the how-to book. Uh-huh. So we went over there and I didn't know it when I walked in, but the big Bologna children's book fair was going to be happening in a couple of weeks. And that is where all the publishers bring the proposals for their books and the booksellers come. The, you know, everybody's like you know, jockeying for the new books coming out on the market and where they're going to be printed and who's right. going to do them. Well, when I, walked into white heat they just started pulling out the books i already owned the commercial books uh-huh. and I, I thought well this isn't very interesting i know i know these books you know i'm not seeing anything of their engineering skills here uh-huh. and then someone way at the back of the of the room said is that carol barton and it turned out it, it was one of my former students uh-huh. <laughs> that they had hired uh-huh. uh, on their staff. And when they realized that I wasn't a spy coming right. to look at the books that they were taking to Bologna, trying to steal the ideas, but um, actually had trained one of their employees, employees. Uh-huh. that broke the ice. And they started bringing out all the stuff they were taking to Bologna, all the, the blank models for me to look at. Yeah. This episode of Paper Talk is sponsored by the Redcliffe Paper Retreat, an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in late August. Enjoy a peaceful, creative week in the tiny hamlet of Redcliffe, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2023 retreat theme is paper panels. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, cut, folded, stitched, and assembled in a variety of ways to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com backslash red-cliff-paper-retreat. We were talking about publishing the how-to book at that point, but Jim wanted to do a different book than I wanted to do. This is so common. And Jim did eventually do his book, um, The Elements of Pop-Up. Oh, right. So, yeah. And I was still going, I really want to do this the book I had envisioned. Yeah. So I sort of gave up for a while. And then I designed a completely different book that was sort of a storyline about a kid that pops up things mm-hmm. and you'd learn how to make the pop-ups as you went through the storyline of the book. Mm-hmm. And I took that. No, I gave up on that one too. <laughs> I kept giving up and going back and doing an artist book instead uh-huh. because it just, um, I wasn't getting any positive response from the industry. And I just thought, uh, you know, this is, this is not really my direction. I want to do the artist books. Yeah. 
Right. But I kept coming back to the idea of a, mm -hmm. of a commercial how-to book. And finally, I designed a third book. Each of these was a completely different book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the pocket paper engineer. So I had a complete mock-up for that. I took it to the Bologna Book Fair mm -hmm. that year. And I, I had quite a bit of interest from commercial publishers. But then again, they didn't want to do the book I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. They wanted a coffee table book or they wanted a book for little kids. Right. And I wanted to do a book for a general audience on paper right. engineering. So finally, I thought, well, I know how to get a book up to press. Mm -hmm. I know how to do all of the work, the typography. I know how to do the imagery. I can get a complete mock-up. What I don't know is how to get a big commercial run of it. Mm -hmm. But I had friends in Santa Fe working at White Heat and working um, independently that had connections with the Chinese um, printing industry oh, okay. and, and industry that did the pop-up books over there. And so they gave me the contacts in China um, to find out about you know, how to actually get it done. And I guess if I'd really known everything involved, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> One yeah. of those projects. Right, right. <laughs> when I got on the plane to go to China, I really wasn't sure that this book was going to be printed. Oh. Um, but when I arrived, uh, I was really lucky because the sales um, rep that I was dealing with came from a publishing family. He was really young. I was shocked. I, th mm -hmm. I thought I was dealing with an older you know, uh -huh. publishing gentleman. Right. And he was really young, but he knew the industry. And he made sure that every decision we made along the production line was the right decision. Uh -huh. And so they did a great job printing. Then I had to hire uh, a... Um, what is it a ship the to get it shipped to the united states a customs oh. brokerage oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i tracked the the container ship coming across and they um unloaded it in boss in baltimore mm -hmm. we rented a truck took it up there um, how many copies up, uh three thousand okay so it was like 300 boxes yeah. that we had to unload. We'd made two trips, unloaded it into the storage facility. And then for the next year, I sold the book just through the website. Wow. And I was, I mean, it was great because I, the book was selling, it was doing really well. I'd made back the, the money I'd invested. Right. But all I did was ship and pack for a year, <laughs> which is not what I wanted to do. Right, right. So then um, I was uh, fortunate again because Book Expo, which is the big uh, United States uh, book exchange, sort of uh -huh. like Bologna and Frankfurt, was happening in Washington, D.C. that year. And through them, I got a distributor was in, uh, uh, out of Chicago. Okay. independent book publishers in Chicago. And I was so relieved uh, <laughs> that I didn't yeah. have to ship it. They did all of that. And I was making less money, but still I wasn't having to doing, do all the work. So I could just concentrate on my book arts again. Right. But yeah. Yeah. And I, 
I haven't looked at those books in a while, but they're a great resource. Um, I know there's pockets built into there, but otherwise, isn't the viewer doing the cutting? Right. And creating the pop-ups. And so you're like taking the book apart and making Making and learning through making a new book. Yeah, it's such a great concept. So the pockets were just to store your completed pop-ups. Right, yeah. And that's why that was the book I wanted to do because I knew just so many people have trouble reading instructions and trying to follow diagrams to make something. Um, But in the classroom, you know, you're actually handling everything, you're actually doing it, and you're learning the structures that way, which reinforces the whole process. So that's why I kept coming back to that book. I didn't want to do the book everybody else wanted to do. I knew this system worked to really instruct someone on how to yeah. to learn how yeah. to construct the pop-ups. It's such mm-hmm. a great resource. And also I think the instructions are printed on the back, right? right. And then you yeah. have the visual on the front once you produce it. So you can, right. it's a great reference tool for, yeah. oh, this is how I do this structure. You can look at it visually but and examine it, but you can also see the directions as well. Yeah. It was, it was the closest I could come to actually being in the classroom right. with somebody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you went on to, you have three volumes? Is yes. that right? So yes. So I was fortunate to have that uh, British rep at the first one because then they could just replicate the same right. um, structure for the next two volumes. Right. Oh, so cool. And these are still out, <laughs> out in the world, a few copies? A few <laughs> copies. Yeah. A few copies. This year, one of my goals is to start contacting publishers and seeing if anyone will pick up the rights. Because I think the third one's out of print. The other two are still marginally in print. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so cool. All right. And you mentioned Italy early on. And I want to talk about your Five Luminous Towers book. I think that was Mm. created in Italy. So how did you first go to Italy? Um, Oh, my... The first going to Italy was on one of those furloughs from the National Park okay. Service. Uh-huh. Um, there was a program called, uh, oh, what was it? It was a homestay program. So I stayed with a family in Asti, Italy. Okay. And I stayed with them for a month and then traveled through Italy for a month. And I went back to see them about three times. Mm-hmm. Um and I just love being in Italy. It's I know a little of the language. I can get by roughly, and they're very forgiving with the language. And I just there's just so much material there that's interesting. So yeah, yeah, I've been to Italy many times now. Right. right. Um, the Five Luminous Tower book was done at a residency in Bolliasco. So that's. Um, the Boliasco uh, Foundation runs a residency for all different types of artists. It's not just book artists. Mm-hmm. It's both performing and actually historians and artists. And so I had learned about that residency through the University of the Arts. Um, the first time I applied, I learned about it like two weeks before the mm-hmm. application was due and mm-hmm. rushed things together and didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, 
um, I applied again and I applied with a, an illuminated proposal. Ah. <laughs> so that attracted their attention. Yeah. So a mock-up um, of what you would produce. Yeah. It was like yeah. one page with a pop-up tower and it lit up. Right. And so um, that residency was six weeks long. Mm-hmm. Boliasco is located just below Genoa, right on the Mediterranean coast there. So it was like an Id- idyllic mm-hmm. uh, residency. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had an incredible group there. We had a composer from Israel and an art historian from Hungary mm-hmm. and a painter from New York and sculptors. And wow. it, it was just a great group of people. Yeah. So I started working on the models for the pop-ups there. And I also started writing the text to go with it. Mm-hmm. The book is um, five towers. They don't represent specific Italian towers, but they represent sort of the functions of the towers. So okay. the first one is a lookout. There's a church bell tower. There's a fortress, a lighthouse, and then sort of the vanity tower where everybody's trying to build a higher tower than their neighbor, as in San Gimignano. And so I built the models for that. I was writing the text. It didn't all come together in the residency. It took longer than that. Mm -hmm. But um, I did start it there. And then the other contributing factor was when I got back, um, the uh, Johns Hopkins University has a historic library and they wanted to do an exhibit um, where artists would come in and choose a a couple books from their collection and make a book inspired by Mm. their, their historic books Mm -hmm. was the same sort of thing we did at the Smithsonian with science and the artist book where the artist was pulling from the historic collection of the museum and then doing something inspired by that piece so i pulled out one of the italian atlases and i actually found the the original map that i had used for one of the towers i had made a copy of a map in italy but here at johns hopkins i found the original map to photograph which was very exciting yeah oh so cool and what was the edition size on that? Oh, the edition on that was 50. What, 50. Happened, <laughs> what happened through my career is, so <laughs> those first editions were pretty big. Yeah. I think Loom was the biggest, 600. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I kept saying, okay, I mean, I love the production. I love sort of the tranquility of sitting and mm-hmm. doing uh, repetitive tasks that you do on a production line, but um, six hundred was a lot. Yeah, and so then I started doing fewer books in each edition. But what happened was they got more and more complex. Right. So uh, fifty sounded like oh that'll be easy, but then building all the towers. Towers were laser cut at that point um, instead of being die cut. So die cutting actually is physically cutting with blades. Laser cutting is actually burning a shape out with a a laser point. 
Yeah. So all of those towers were laser cut, but they still involved a lot in putting them together and assembling them on the page. Well, yeah. And talk a little bit about the, the illuminating, how that was built. In. Oh, <laughs> right. So that entailed a lot of experimenting too. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried all kinds of different lights. Um, LEDs were too bright and too cold. I wanted mm-hmm. a warm light there. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted something where you could maintain the book. So change the batteries and change the light bulb. Right. Um, and I went through so many and, and I wanted the light to turn on and off magnetically. Mm. So there's a magnet that clicks the switch. When you open the book, it turns the light on. When you close the book, the magnets turn the light off. So all of those factors had to Mm. come into play. And I was experimenting with lots of different things. And I ended up settling on mag flashlight bulbs, the little black mag flashlights. Mm -hmm. So they had the switch you could you could put the batteries in a little battery case and the light could be changed the lamp could be changed there was a little socket that I could Mm -hmm. buy to put the light into Mm -hmm. and then the magnets um, I had little magnetic switches so I embedded the magnets in the covers of the book that would turn it on and off with the opening closing of the book and is it just one light that it's one light through all the pages that's really brilliant yeah yeah but there was a difficulty with that uh-huh. <laughs> and this is another interesting story yeah. so I usually don't start selling books until they're absolutely the right. edition is finished uh-huh. but um I, I had promised a book to a collector here in Washington and they they contacted me and said we're going to have a party for the book Mm. And I hadn't really finished the entire Mm. edition yet. Right. There's a problem with having one light because as you turn the pages in the book, the text block shifts from the right to the left. And I had to keep the text block centered over that light bulb. Right. So I hadn't quite figured out that problem, (laughs) but I had a deadline now. Right. So, I've, I came up something that worked really well. Um, the text block has a sleeve on the back that slides into uh, a pocket. Mm-hmm. And as you turn, so it, the text block slides, is able to slide back and forth I within see. the book. Right. And as you turn the pages, it slides to the left and remains centered over the light. Uh. Cool. And it's something you'd never notice as right. you were looking at the book, right. but it was a big design problem oh, that yeah. was fun to solve. Luckily, I solved it and it worked. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done if it hadn't worked out. Oh, that's cool. I love that. It was a good challenge. Yeah. Wow. Um Okay, and in your teaching and building pop-ups, what's your favorite paper to use? Um, mainly I use Mohawk Superfine because that's a really nice paper. It takes an image very well. It die cuts perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it's done by the Mohawk company up in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's used a lot in bookmaking just to make book models and and right. samples and stuff like that so do for you have me, a weight a weight that you like uh it depends on the book yeah i think around it's between 80 and 120 mm -hmm. text weight okay. if i were doing an accordion weight i'd go to a uh cover weight uh-huh which is a little heavier right 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 yeah but it right. it it works well in an offset press, so. Right, cool. Okay, and um, where do you get it? Just curious. Do you buy big well, sheets or? I was getting it from. Uh, we have a paper uh, paper supplier here in okay. Washington, mm -hmm. but they're out of business now, and mm -hmm. I haven't ordered it for a long time, so I don't know where to suggest to get it right. anymore. Right. I think Mohawk has a website. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I know. You, oh, and I wanted to finish the Italy thread that we went to Italy together last summer to teach at ICA Arts. And I just think it's an interesting story how that came about. So I wanted you to tell that because things just happen because of people. I you know. know. And all of a sudden <laughs> you're teaching in Italy. So <laughs> um, I was a former a graphic artist who had taken my class at Aramont School of Crafts in um, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, mm -hmm. contacted me several years after the class. And he said, oh, I'm involved in this new, in this art center in Italy. And we were wondering if you'd be willing to teach there. And of course, Italy, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite places to go. I said, sure. So we set up a pop-up class for me to teach a pop-up class there. Mm -hmm. And then the coronavirus hit. Right. So it got canceled two, three years. It took wow. three years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so finally this past year, when um, things started opening up in Italy again, uh, they wanted it to run. And David Voros, the director, wanted to expand the idea of paper because Fabriano, um, the center of, hand paper making in Italy since 1600s, right? Yeah. Um, is located close to them. So the idea of paper making, paper related art forms was very close to his heart. He wanted mm -hmm. to move into that area at, um, at the ICA, International Center for the Arts. So he asked me if I knew any other people that did paper. And of course I did. Yeah. So we got you. And Amanda Degener, who does um, handmade paper, and Denise Carbone, who is a fine binder. And mm -hmm. we all got together in Italy, and it was really a great experience there. Yeah, it was. And um, sadly, I'm not going this year, but I know you guys are going again. And yeah. Tom, Tom Balbo's joining you. So that's right. so amazing. Excited it's about that. Trip of a lifetime. Yeah, cool. Um, and, uh, I know because I stayed in the same house with you that you're doing uh, a lot of painting these days. So you're going back to your roots. So kind of, yeah, tell me what, 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 what you're doing. Are, are you still doing paper engineering at all? I'm or? really not. The, uh -huh. the last book I did was called, um, Landforms and Air Currents. Mm -hmm. And that one I produced entirely on my, uh, Epson printer. Okay. So it was another example of, I thought, okay, this time I'm only going to do 25 in the edition. Mm -hmm. 
but it got so complex. It mm. took me two and a half years to put the, the whole book together. Yeah. And it's paintings that I did um, that incorporate pop-ups and poems that I wrote. Mm. And it just deals with a whole lot of sort of abstract landscape ideas. Mm -hmm. So after finishing those 25 books, I was really burnt out on the production. <laughs> um, and having done that book where I had gone back to painted images, I was having so much fun with the mm -hmm. paintings that mm -hmm. I thought, this is where I'm going from here. I'm sort of retiring from the paper engineering. I'm going back to my roots as a painter. Yeah. And I've been doing the landscape paintings, watercolor paintings mainly um, since then. And I just love going to the studio and experimenting and getting instant results instead of having, you know, a year's, yeah. two years worth of production ahead of me. Right. So, yeah, I was doing uh, paintings while I was at uh, teaching at ICA, too. Mm -hmm. And I was really happy with those little paintings. Yeah, they were wonderful. Um, what's your studio like? What is your studio now? I have a little uh, studio that's about four blocks from my house. It's okay. just up the hill. Uh -huh. um, it was built as a painter's studio in the backyard of a, just a residential house. Uh -huh. And um, then it was used as a, by a photographer for National Geographic for a while. And then I saw a little ad for it come up in our town paper Mm -hmm. I ran up there and rented it. And I, I think I've been there for about 25 years now going oh. on because oh. the little girl that moved in with the family, it actually went through three house sales and I managed to keep the studio oh. in the backyard. Uh -huh. uh, the little girl that moved in with the last family was six at the time. She became my little assistant. She could use oh. an exacto knife at age six. Wow. And if you look at the paper, pocket paper engineering book, she did all the children's illustrations in those. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> but she is now uh, about 23, 25. Right. She's um, in Italy doing work in Italy with her family. Her oh. family is with the State Department, and their last posting was in Italy. Oh. So. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, the Italian connection circle. comes yeah. back. Right, right, right. Okay, and let's talk about, you have two recommendations. So tell me about uh, the podcast, which I had to put in my playlist, The Lonely Palette. That um, I've been listening to for quite a while. It mm -hmm. started with a woman who was working at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And she would take just one painting in the collection and do a podcast on it yeah. and they're really they're in depth she's very funny she goes back into how the work was created what the environment was at the time of its creation who the artist was all these little interesting facts mm -hmm. about the painting and she covers just the whole gamut of paintings I just noticed she did one on Caravaggio, but she's mm -hmm. done them on Mondrian and Van Gogh and mm -hmm. just the whole range of paintings that are in the Boston collection. I think she's expanded beyond the Boston collection now, but they're wonderful to listen to. She has a oh, great presence yeah. in the right. podcast. And to get all those details and yeah, yeah uh -huh. cool, cool. Okay. And then you also recommended the website Atlas Obscura. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know them? No, I just looked <laughs> at it though. Oh, okay. So Atlas Obscura, I, I just love, you know, I'm not focused just on books and book arts. I, I really like to expand my vision and mm-hmm. keep track of things happening in the science world and travel world. Atlas Obscura is a website that um, it's sort of like Wikipedia where people contribute to it all the time. Mm -hmm. So it takes a city and sort of documents unusual, interesting places in the city, not the run of the mill tourist spots so much, but more obscure places Mm -hmm. to look at. So whenever I'm going to a city, I would check Atlas Obscura for places to look at. Uh And I did it in Rome and really found some gems there. Uh Um, The other thing they do, though, is you can sign up for, I think it's a twice weekly email. And you'll get an email just about some fascinating historical document or some object that's interesting. Uh I just read one on the history of the snow globe. Uh (laughs) How the snow globe got started. And another one on they're genetically trying to re-engineer both the woolly mammoth and the aurochs, uh, the, the prehistoric cow. Right. So all sorts of interesting, just right. uh, disparate stories that they come up with. With the, I don't read all of them, but every yeah. once in a while something catches my eye. And they yeah. have a, another facet of it called gastro obscura that documents foods Ooh. around the world. Oh, yeah. Cool. Wow. That sounds great. I'm going to check it out. Um, yay. And where can we find you online, Carol? Uh, I have two websites. The The book arts one I is sort of not maintained so much, but it still has all the information from my classes. Mm-hmm. And that's popularkinetics.com. Mm-hmm. And the painting one is carolbartonpaintings.com. Awesome. Uh, what are you What are you doing today? Are you going to paint today? Uh, I will go up there and paint, uh-huh. but I'm also working on uh, <laughs> restoring the last room in the house that hasn't uh, been finished. So okay. it's between construction and painting, <laughs> both types of painting. Right, right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was really fun, Carol. Sure. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert's studio. You can find out more at helenhebertstudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes, and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. There's a reason, besides the season, the main contain-